Prestige heads and welcome to this week's American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my friend Derek Davis. And Derek, how's it going over in Northern Virginia? Uh, it's going okay. Uh, we're audio only, of course, so people can't see that I'm luxuriating in the comfort of my American Prestige <laughs> organic cotton T-shirt. Uh, but you, uh, you should all dope. know that. You look great, man. I think <laughs> men will want to be you and women will want to be with you. I think that is the the style of American prestige and everything that we're trying to do here on the show. So uh, everyone, Derek looks great. He, he looks resplendent in his American <laughs> prestige outfit. Um, so why don't we get to, you know, how's that for a transition? <laughs> so why hard don't we get cue. to <laughs> yeah. hard, hard, hard cut. So, um, there's a lot going on in the world, as there always is this week, and one of those things is the Nicaraguan election. So, Derek, what's been going on in Nicaragua? What's the state of play there? And why should prestige heads uh, know what's going on? Uh, yeah, Nicaragua is probably about to become the next Venezuela slash Iran slash Syria in terms of U.S. sanctions. Uh, that would be my guess. Uh, Daniel Ortega, the president, uh, won a re-election on Sunday um, in a vote that has been criticized by the United States and by the Organization of American States uh, in a something that gives me a little bit of a flashback to Bolivia a couple of years ago, uh, has been criticized as a sham, farcical, etc., uh, etc. Et Countries from Chile to neighboring Costa Rica to the United States and the European Union denounced the election as illegitimate, anti-democratic, and a pantomime, saying they would not recognize the results. This is because earlier this year, Ortega arrested a number of prominent figures in the Nicaraguan opposition, including some of his ex-Sandinista uh, pals who have since left that movement and, and drifted more to the right. Uh, there's a coincidence there in terms of arresting these people in the run-up to a presidential election, uh, but it should be said that, uh, you know, there had been uh, leaks. There was a big WikiLeaks thing, uh, you know, I think last year maybe or, or a little bit earlier uh, that showed the extent to which the Nicaraguan opposition is, has been in contact with um, elements of the U.S. government. So, I, you know, I, I don't know the specifics of these particular arrests, and I don't want to comment um, in a way that suggests I think they're one thing or another, but there's certainly some reason to to wonder about the the kind of allegiances of of some people in the Nicaraguan opposition. So that said, um, this vote happened. He won. He won with seventy five percent under um, at least officially fairly reasonable turnout around sixty five percent. The opposition is claiming that that's grossly inflated. There's no way to to verify that. Um, and uh, the Biden administration has been promising for weeks now in the run up to this vote that uh, it will be uh, welcoming 
or take this new term uh, with an array of sanctions. It's not clear what those are going to be yet. They haven't unveiled them, um, but this is uh, this is where we're heading. And as I said, the the OAS you know issued its own statement saying uh, the vote was a sham and should be annulled, which is very similar to what they did uh, with Evo Morales in Bolivia uh, in 2019, uh, which precipitated a coup. Um, I think Ortega's position is probably a little stronger vis-a-vis his own security forces than Morales was. So I don't think the risk of a coup is is quite as great there, but, uh, you know, certainly also something to, to keep in mind. So what does the U.S. want out of this thing? What is what is the interest in, in Nicaragua? And of course, uh, we'll, we'll do an episode on this one day, but there's a long history of U.S.-Nicaraguan involvement going back a century, uh, various invasions, various support of, 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 you know, unsavory characters. But what is the Biden administration, why do they care uh, about Ortega? And what do they want to get out of Nicaragua that they're going to be imposing sanctions? Yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, a lot of this, I think, just goes back to a general antipathy to to leftist governments in, in Latin America, period. Right. That's my um, sense. Yeah, yeah I, I don't. And at, at one time, there were, you know, Cold War issues bound up in that there were, um, you know, there are economic issues, you know, how much can we. Uh, can we exploit this country? Can our our noble uh, American companies exploit this country for cheap labor and, <laughs> and uh, other sorts of things? Um, now, you know, I, to the extent that there's still sort of a, a Cold War dynamic at play, it would be, you know, in terms of China and, and Chinese influence in Latin America. Um, I, I mean, I, I, I sometimes wonder if this is, you know, just like, this is how we, this is what we are. This is what we do. We, we, we undermine right. we just sanction. Yeah. Uh, and Particularly this is, this in Latin America. Um, I mean, Nicaragua is part of the, the, the DR CAFTA uh, program, the Dominican Republic, Central America free trade agreement. Um, so, I mean, there is an economic angle here that, that uh, I'm sure uh, we would prefer a more compliant government uh, in place there. And there's been some talk of maybe kicking them out of that, uh, free trade agreement, uh, you know, as a as a sort of um, end game uh, sanction or penalty against Ortega, but um, that's who knows. Yeah, and I just think uh, again, I, I do think those economic rationales are crucial, and particularly for for providing a justificatory logic. But you know, essentially, since the eighteen twenties, uh, no American has thought that uh, no American in power, at least, has thought that Latin America, Central America, should be able to effectively uh, govern themselves. We actually talk about that quite a bit in our um, interview this week with Ada Ferrer about Cuba, and I think that should be uh, considered in light of this longer historical context. Uh, that is to say what's going on in Nicaragua should be considered in light of of that. Yeah, I don't I mean I don't know how to parse how much is this percentage and how much is that percentage, but I do think there's an element of like imperial muscle memory at play here like this is just our our playground and we're going to make sure the things operate the way we want them to. Right, I think that's right. Um, so speaking of playgrounds, let's take our submarine over to uh, the Middle East and talk about our old friend, someone who's been repeatedly talked about on American Prestige, uh, Mohammed bin Salman. So what's been going on with uh, MBS, Tom Friedman's uh, good old buddy? <laughs> yeah, so there's a, uh, there's a new piece at The Intercept, Ryan Grimm and Ken Klippenstein um, did, a, did a piece just uh, today, Thursday, 
November 11th, if you're listening, you know, weeks from now, uh, as you should, you should all go back and, and listen to these episodes multiple times. Um, yeah, at least. Yeah. Three or four <laughs> times, I think, is how you I, yeah. get it, you know, when you really appreciate really, it. It's really like the Godfather. It yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway, the, the contention here is that uh, the reason that gas prices are so high and gas prices to the extent that they're driving other issues, uh, you know, inflationary issues, uh, is because Mohammed bin Salman is trying to punish the Biden administration and to wreck the Biden administration uh, to bring Republicans back into power in Washington. Um, I, I think they make a, a good case for this being maybe part of uh, Mohammed bin Salman's uh, calculus here as he sort of approaches resuming full oil production. I mean, the, the issue here is that Saudi Arabia and the rest of uh, OPEC or OPEC Plus, uh, as it's now called with the larger group, including Russia, uh, cut oil production by like 10 million barrels a day last year at the height of the, the pandemic uh, because the demand just wasn't there. Uh, and they're sort of slowly ramping back up. But the Saudis ha and the Russians, um, all, more the Saudis, I think, than the Russians, uh, have been sort of slow rolling that that uh, resumption of capacity, I think, partly because the, there's a concern about flooding the market with too much oil and drop, you know, crashing prices again, which the Saudis don't want uh, part of it. But part of it may be this this uh, desire to hamstring the Biden administration a little bit. I, I question how much um, I think this is uh, a convenient narrative for the Biden administration or for Joe Biden, who, you know, has sort of uh, been on OPEC plus about uh, pumping more oil, even as he's doing the rounds of, uh, you know, the environmental conferences and talking about uh, carbon emissions. Um, but I think it, it, it is kind of a convenient narrative for him to some extent. But I, I don't discount the uh, the idea that this could be a factor. So what does that indicate? Does that indicate anything about um, MBS's future strategy? Is he giving up on NEOM or, or could we expect more NEOMs in the future? No, I think what it indicates is he, I mean, to, to the extent that this is a, a real thing that he's decided he, he wants to do here to, to screw the Biden administration, um, he's decided as, you know, frankly, you know, Benjamin Netanyahu decided many years ago uh, that he wants Republicans in power in, in Washington. They're sort of banking um, on... I mean, to, to one extent, it's good for them or they've decided that it's good for them to have Republicans in power. Um, and, and to, to a, you know, sort of in addition to that, I think they're sort of banking on um, the United States basically becoming a one party state. Um, in the not too distant future, which I, 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 you know, we may be on the road to that. I don't, uh, uh, I don't know that that's the the uh, a mistaken assumption. Um, and so, you know, they feel like uh, this is the direction things are heading. MBS obviously had a great relationship with Donald Trump and Jared Kushner, so he would, uh, you know, if he could get Donald Trump back in office in in twenty twenty four, that would, that would be ideal. ideal. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, I think that that they've made this decision to break. With with tradition, which has sort of been um, to try and deal with both parties and, and to be, you know, in a, in a bipartisan way on whether it's Israel or, or Saudi Arabia, um, they've decided that it's better it's better for them to to just go all in on the on the Republicans. Um, I mean, I again, it's it's speculative. This is this is uh, this piece is based on uh, some comments that Biden has made that have suggested that uh, maybe MBS is mad at him because. 
while the Biden administration hasn't really changed U.S. policy towards Saudi Arabia at all, there's been sort of a rhetorical distancing from MBS, and maybe he's upset about that, or he's, uh, you know, feeling insulted. Um, there were comments from uh, Ali Shahabi, who is a um, PR hack, basically, who, who used to run a place called the Arabia Foundation, uh, whose job is to launder Mohammed bin Salman's image uh, in Washington. He's he's really a kind of creepy guy. There's a big profile on him in Business Insider uh, back in September that that uh, really, if you want to check out, uh, he's a he's a strange and and uh, unpleasant human being, uh, or seems to be anyway. Um, <laughs> So no, I would never have guessed. He, How dare you? He, <laughs> I mean, he he's, he made a comment to The Intercept, uh, and I can read it here. I want to read it because the, the last line of their description here is, is uh, kind of puts it all into perspective. Uh, in a comment to The Intercept, Shahabi said, Saudi has put a lot of work into getting a cohesive OPEC plus to work over the last 15 months since the crisis that dropped oil futures below zero. This was last year during the pandemic. So it will not break ranks with the consensus or Russia on this. Also, the kingdom resents being blamed for what is essentially a structural problem not of its own making in the U.S., which has hampered its own energy production. Finally, I hear that the price of Thanksgiving turkeys has doubled in the U.S., so why can oil prices also not inflate? Shahabi added a wink emoji to the end of his comment. <laughs> so, you know, this is the kind of per person you're dealing with here. Um, but, you know, so he, he, he kind of intimates that there's a uh, uh, some hard feelings here. I don't know. I mean, it's it's innuendo based, but it's not. Um, I do think they put together a a, a fairly compelling um, circumstantial case that that uh, there is something good, you know, to MBS being pissed off at the the Biden administration. Uh, it's also very interesting to see again the. the one theme that we're returning to on the show is this post post Cold War foreign policy, where, where Saudi Arabia and Israel, you know, from very different perspectives, wind up adopting relatively similar foreign policies in terms of trying to get the Republicans um, in power for their various purposes. And so that's an interesting constellation. We're seeing um, as the U.S. commits to that strategy of hegemonic stabilization that we've talked about before. What's going on? Um, so speaking of hegemony, let's go over. Let's take the railroad, uh, the train to. Uh, Iraq and what's been going on in uh, in Iraq recently? Doc? I thought you were going to take the train to Damascus, which was blown up by uh, Lawrence of Arabia and his pals. But uh, during World War One, but no, <laughs> nice, nice yeah. reference. All the kids will get. <laughs> <laughs> so um, yeah, there's a, a potentially troubling situation in Iraq. Although it seems like uh, they may avoid a full blown crisis. Um, a somebody, and by somebody, I mean, probably a, uh, an Iraqi militia or two, uh, fired drones, you know, launched a, a, basically a drone attack on the residence of, uh, Iraqi prime minister Mustafa al-Khadami, uh, over the weekend. Um, nobody was killed. A few people in his security detail were wounded. Uh, but it's clearly, you know, an attempt to assassinate the prime minister. Probably uh, out of a sense of frustration that the militia, uh, the militia movement's political party, its kind of political front, which is called the Fatah Party or the Fatah Alliance, uh, did very poorly in last month's 
parliamentary election. I say very poorly, they lost like two thirds of the seats that they had previously controlled in parliament. Uh, in terms of raw vote counts, I think they actually were uh, the got the largest share of the popular vote, but they ran uh, what looks to have been a very disorganized campaign. They didn't focus on uh, winning particular seats. They, they just kind of uh, focused on the overall picture, I guess. And so they wound up losing in a number of kind of direct elect, uh, directly elected uh, regions and, and the, their popular vote strength didn't translate uh, into actually winning seats. Uh, so they're frustrated. There was a protest on Friday uh, where the, the demonstrators, clearly either supporters of the militias or militia members themselves, uh, tried to bust into Baghdad's Green Zone, which is the secure part of the city where embassies and government offices are. Uh, one person was killed, um, presumably by uh, Iraqi security forces. Um, and so the militias, uh, it seems like, you know, or I don't want to say the militias, like all of them, but uh, some faction within the militias decided it was time to take a shot uh, at Mustafa al-Kadhimi. Um, this seems to have drawn, uh, interestingly enough, uh, a bit of a, a rebuke from Iran, which is, of course, heavily involved in the uh, Iraqi militia community. Where the, the militias are treated, at least by the United States, as basically Iranian proxies. Rhonda Slim is from the Middle East Institute. She says Kadmi has long had issues with paramilitary groups backed by Iran. Um, that's not entirely true. And in fact, it seems like they may have uh, overstepped themselves a little bit trying to murder the prime minister uh, because the Iranians seem to have uh, scolded them a little bit. And so they've agreed to uh, kind of tamp down their rhetoric. Uh, they've demanded, uh, they're insisting on an investigation into the, uh, the protester who was killed, but they've agreed to uh, stop you know, kind of expressing uh, outrage publicly and to uh, hand over a couple of people who allegedly were connected with the, uh, the drone strike. So what does this suggest about uh, Iraqi domestic politics and the changing relations of the Middle, uh, of the Middle East, particularly um, after the United States seems to be taking a bit of a step back, at least in some regard? Yeah, I think, I mean, the more the United States kind of um, steps out of the Middle East, or you know, if it if it does, and the Biden administration, you know, despite pulling out of Afghanistan, hasn't really uh, adjusted the U.S. position vis-a-vis -vis Iran and when it comes to you know Iraq and Syria uh, or the Gulf that much. Um, but to the extent that that the U.S. is seen as kind of reducing its presence in the region, the less. Iraqi politics, and you know, I'm thinking in this specific instance of, of Iraq, uh, the less Iraqi politics become a tug of war between the United States and and, and Iran for influence in Baghdad, um, and the more I think um, you could say Iran's main interest uh, in, in Iraq is sort of predictability and stability, the, the same as any other country would have in, in, in its neighbors. Um, you know, you don't want chaos. You don't want something that's going to generate, uh, you know, problems for you on your border. Uh, so the, the relations between these countries start to look a little more normal, I think. Um, and, and for the Iranians, you know, again, the suggestion has always been that these militias just kind of do whatever Iran tells them. And that's clearly not the case. They, they operate um, very autonomously, and sometimes they do things that the Iranians aren't particularly happy about, like this. Um, you know, so I think their, their relationship, um, you know, may change 
uh, as as the militias, frankly, lose some of their usefulness for the Iranians because they're no longer needed to sort of counter the United States influence. So do you think they're going to become an independent power source in Iraq or are we seeing the beginning of the end of these sorts of groups? I don't think they're going to go away and they'll always have some utility for the Iranians because, you know, you have, uh, uh, they're, they're a fairly reliable, um, although again, you know, sometimes they go a little off the reservation, but they're a fairly reliable, little, little, uh, go a little crazy, but, um, they're fairly reliable kind of vector for Iranian influence in Baghdad. Um, so I, I, I don't think they're going to go away. Um, they certainly have a lot of, they still have, I think, a lot of uh, influence in the Shia community, especially because these were the, the forces that defended much of Iraq from, from the Islamic State, for example. Um, you know, so they, they still, they still kind of trade on that reputation quite a bit. Um, I don't think they're going anywhere, but I, I do think that their influence is, is going to diminish, especially now that they've sort of, um, apparently just through a, a pure kind of blunder of organization have, uh, uh, have cost themselves a lot of, uh, kind of position in, in the Iraqi parliament. Um, all right, great. Well, thank you, Derek. Uh, and everyone, please enjoy our interview with Ada Ferrer about the uh, history of Cuba. And we'll see you all next week. Bye-bye. Hello, everyone, and welcome to your weekly American Prestige interview. Uh, I'm Danny Bessner here, as always, with Derek Davison. And we are very happy uh, and honored to be joined by Ada Ferrer, the Julia Silver Professor of History and Latin American and Caribbean Studies at NYU, to speak with her about her new book, Cuba and American History, which was recently released by Scribner. Ada, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Um, so why don't we just start at the beginning? Um, Cuban colonization. When when was Cuba um, po- first populated by indigenous peoples, and and what's that early history of of colonization? And we've talked a bit on the show about um, the early history of Mexican colonization, but we haven't really uh, dived in yet to the 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 unique but connected history of um, colonization in the Caribbean. So mm-hmm. um, why don't we just start there? Yeah, so um, there were several indigenous groups in Cuba. Uh, the, the, the principal one and, and the ones that were uh, most populous and that bore the brunt of Spanish uh, conquest and colonization were the Tainos. Um, there's debates about how many there were at the time of Spanish colonization. Uh, it's recently been, um, there was a controversial um op-ed piece in the in the New York Times last year that that put the number um, significantly lower but uh, they were a community that had come up uh, you know thousands of years before from South America along the Caribbean chain uh, of islands and settled in all the great Antilles the greater Antilles so Cuba Puerto Rico Hispaniola, which is, you know, is Haiti and the Dominican Republic. They were also in the, in the Bahamas, Jamaica, et cetera. And they were, um, they had, you know, their own sense of history, their own, uh, I- ideas about and stories about their origins. They had, uh, religious systems. They had a system of settled agriculture that became actually 
parts of which survived, elements of which survived uh, through the colonial period and then were readapted by African slaves in Cuba. They had um, musical instruments that are still part of, um, of Caribbean music. Their language is is essential to to modern day Spanish and even modern day English. So words like hurricane, for example, uh, have their origins in 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 Taino language. So was the Greater Antilles population that would be fair to um, view as one basically coherent cultural unit? There's a lot of interactions between these various island chains, and they, and they shared things like gods and cultural products. So similar, I'm a bit more familiar with uh, the Pacific, what might be termed Greater Polynesia. Is that Would that be a similar uh, analogy there? Yeah, well, I mean, there's subgroups. So, so for example, uh, historical archaeologists will talk about the classic, the classical Dainos that were more in Cuba, the Eastern Dainos that were more in Puerto Rico. But, but, but yes, they can be seen as a coherent community. The term Taino, we don't know what the people called themselves, right? These are words that, that developed to name them, uh, later by, by Europeans. Um, Yes, that there was a lot of contact between and among the islands. Uh, you know, they, Dainos used canoes that navigated the straits and channels of the, of the Caribbean. So, um, so yes, I would say that they're similar. Uh, were there interactions with Latin America itself as well, or was it mostly confined to the island chains? At least in, uh, you know that's a, that's a good question. The, the origins are in in South America, but mm-hmm. uh, but I think uh, they, they probably from Cuba, which is pretty far, no- which is you know at the northern end of that chain, right? right the, of course, I yeah. don't think that um, that that would have been that likely. I think very interesting, Derek. Did you have a question? Uh, um, I, I did. I I I'm curious. You know, talking about the the contact between these societies and between the islands what effect then did the the arrival of europeans and colonization have on the connections between these communities on the one hand i mean they're all sort of brought into these bigger global empires but on the other hand you know any chance for sort of uh, the kind of interactions that they had prior to uh, colonization seems like it would have been been lost completely well, I mean, obviously, European uh, colonization had an enormous and and devastating impact. Uh, a huge part of that is demographic, uh, in that you know between disease and overwork and and war and violence, uh, the vast majority of the indigenous community was uh, was wiped out. It wasn't. It was never wiped out totally, and and people survived, and communities survived. So you don't want to turn those Caribbean islands into lands completely emptied of indigenous uh, presence because they they weren't they they they, they weren't at all. Um, so, but but anyway, that was a that was a tremendous um, and enormous and detrimental impact. One thing that that occurred because this when the Spanish arrived and, and you see this from the very beginning with Columbus's first voyage, he arrives in the Bahamas. People there tell him that there's gold on other islands and he tries to follow the gold and goes to Cuba and Cuba. They tell him there's gold on the other island and he goes that way. So in some sense, indigenous, uh, people are, you know, Columbus is a navigator, but indigenous people are also directing him places. And in the same, in the same way, or there's a, there's a flip side to that, which is that when the Spanish 
begin um, trying to settle and conquer the islands in earnest, indigenous people use that mobility, try to use that mobility for their own purposes. So one of the most famous uh, stories of indigenous resistance in Cuba is the story of a man named Atue. Uh, his, you know, his face um, is on beer and beer and malt liquor bottles today. He's a very famous um, figure and, and icon. And he was originally from Hispaniola, but he saw what the Spanish was, were doing there. They, his community was suffering. He didn't want to be enslaved or, or, um, or waged war against. So he took his people and went to Cuba. And so you get this, this pattern where indigenous people are also using mobility among the islands to try to escape and shield themselves from the Spanish. It didn't work in Atue's case. He was captured and executed in a in a very kind of famous uh, way that um, that the, the the priest Bartolomé de las Casas talked about. You know, and I call it in the book the first. If I, if I can go on a little longer about it, uh, Please, the, yeah, fir the, sure. the first perhaps the first political speech uh, uttered on on Cuban soil, which is when the Spanish uh, capture him and and are about to uh, burn him at the stake, a priest goes up to him and gives him the opportunity to convert to Catholicism. And, you know, he's got the Bible in his hand and Atue asked, because the priest says, if you accept, you know, if you accept God and, uh, and so on, you will ascend to heaven. And Atue said, well, are the Spanish in heaven? And the priest <laughs> said, the good ones are. And he said, that's okay, I'll go to hell. And then they burned <laughs> him at the, at the stake. We don't actually know if that's true, but it's possible. Is that De Las Casas uh, yeah, so, talking but, about that? Yeah. Okay, so yeah, 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 yeah. I have my students read some of his stuff. Um, so what year is that? What what year does that trial take place? Oh, that, um, you know, <laughs> you're asking a historian a question. That is about, I mean, about 1513 maybe, I can't remember. So before the Cortez expedition. So that's really my next, yes, my yes. next question. Because we've talked again a bit on this podcast and I'm more familiar with Cortez in Mexico in 1519 and the various campaigns. So could you maybe talk a little bit how Cuba fits into that larger Spanish colonial strategy? Um, yeah. What does the Spanish crown want to get from Cuba and particularly how does it fit into the landings in actual Central and South America that are occurring a little after? Cuba is yeah. colonized slightly earlier, right? 1511, I believe, is the first uh, colony. So um, could you talk a little bit about that grand strategy of yeah. the Spanish crown during this right. early 16th century right. period? Well, one of the things that happened on, on the islands is that, I mean, there, there weren't huge deposits of gold or silver. And the indigenous communities, compared to what the Spanish would later find in places like Mexico or, or the Andes, were significantly smaller. And so the Hernán Cortés, who was an encomendero in Cuba, <clears throat> excuse me, um, you know, led this expedition to, to, to Mexico. And once people, once Spaniards in Cuba started hearing about, you know, the treasures of Mexico and indigenous communities that could, you know, mine it and, and, and so on, many, many Spaniards in Cuba tried to, started to decamp to places like Mexico and then later to Central America and the Andes, uh, uh, and, and so on. So one of the things that happens uh, in the 16th century in Cuba is that the Spanish community of settlers declines precipitously. Um, and the Spanish crown tries to limit that. It makes it punishable, punishable by law and possibly by execution uh, and by, you know, confiscation of all property for Spaniards to leave Cuba. Um, 
but people leave anyway. And what, what, so as the Spanish community declines, as the Mexican empire, you know, Spain's empire in Mexico and the Andes gains more and more power, Cuba becomes, and especially Havana, Havana, where it's situated, it's situated at kind of where the, the Gulf Stream gathers. And so Havana ends up becoming the storehouse for, for South, for Mexican and South American treasure. So as more pirates and, and privateers and corsairs are attacking Spanish ships, trying to capture all that gold and silver, the, the Spanish crown realizes that to protect itself, it will use Havana in a particular way. So all those treasure ships from the Andes, from, you know, from, um, from Mexico gather in Havana. And they make the crossing to Spain together, you know, escorted by armed uh, galleons. So Havana becomes the place where, you know, oriented outward, awaiting the arrival of the treasure fleet, uh, the the Spanish uh, fortify it, and it becomes one of the most fortified uh, settlements in the in the New World. And it's all to protect that South American treasure. So that's that's Havana's role. Um, you know, after the initial conquest as a, as a, as a, you know, as an entrepot, as a, as a, as a cosmopolitan port where Spanish treasure spends significant amounts of time. So that leads me directly to the question. I, I sort of thinking about John Tatino's recent book about how capitalism really got going in Latin America. Um, so how does Havana becoming essentially uh, an international store of specie affect the development of global capitalism? Because I think in, in history, that's been, you know, a recent very important trend. I, I think it started in early modern history, starting with Venice as sort of this mm-hmm. city that allows the global circulation of goods. So if we're thinking about, you know, this is the moment where mercantilism begins to give way to capitalism. How does Havana mm-hmm. play into that, it's particularly because it seems like international banking and international financial flows would be centered and uh, coming out of Havana. Yeah. So, I mean, I think uh, American students are always surprised when they find out that the most coveted currency in the world was the Spanish, the Spanish pieces of eight, the Spanish silver coin, which was the, you know, which circulated across the globe, uh, was the most valuable money in the world. Uh, you know, was absolutely essential to the history of, of, of finance and capital globally in the early modern world. And because the source of all that came from the new world and because Havana became the place where most of it was, where, where so much of it ended up uh, or spent time, Havana becomes, um, yeah, just, a, a, you know, another, another leg of that stool, right? And, and it's part of what makes Cuba, the object of so much uh, interest on the part of European powers. So, uh, the, you know, the British want it, the French want it, uh, Spain is, Spain is insist, you know, really determined to keep it. Uh, but it also, it, it imagines it only in a particular way. So if you think about empires built on mineral wealth, that is what the Spanish empire is. Right. There will come, uh, you know, a little bit later as, as the, as, as other Europeans enter the, the new world and colonize and settle it. And you get 
the, in particular, the French and English, but not only the French and English, developing different kinds of colonies in the Caribbean that are not based on mineral wealth. They're, they're empires of commerce, commerce. They're based on sugar. They're based right, on slavery, sugar. right? Um, so the Spanish want to keep it, but, but, but they're still seeing Cuba's role as Cuba's role in an empire based on mineral wealth. They don't yet see it for what it will become later, right? A different kind of uh, imperial, a different kind of colony where wealth will not come from from gold or silver, but basically from the labor of of enslaved people. So maybe we could talk about uh, that transformation. We spent quite a bit of time in the 16th century. Uh, what happens over the course of the 17th um, and the 18th centuries in terms of the changing face of the Cuban political economy and particularly racial demographics? Because yeah. I know your work focuses so much on on the history of race and ind- yeah. indigeneity. If yeah. we could talk a little bit, is how do those racial demographics change and what does that mean uh, for Cuban society in right. the 17th and 18th centuries? Yeah, well, I mean, still in the, seven, in the 17th century, um, it, it's still playing that role in terms of the Spanish Empire and is the place where where the the treasure fleet gathers. Right, uh, you do have, um, you know, in terms of African slavery, it existed practically from well from the beginning. Right, so there were enslaved people who accompanied uh, the the earliest Spanish voyages. You have um, you have Africans taken to Cuba aboard slave ships beginning in the late, um, in the late 16th, mid to late 16th century. And that continues. Initially, those Africans are brought to work primarily in fields like fortification. So they are the ones building the, the huge forts that are protecting, uh, the Spanish treasure. They're also working on sugar plant, sugar mills. They're not quite, they're not plantations yet in the sense that we think of plantations. So they're also producing sugar. They're working in, uh, you know, in domestic arenas and in cities and so on. But the transformation of Cuba into a major producer of sugar happens much later. So it's, it's, it begins in the late 18th century, mid to late 18th century. Um, you know, again, sugar was there from the, from almost from the start, but it really takes off. There's several things that contribute to its takeoff. Yeah. Can we talk about that? I'm very curious about why does it make this shift? Yeah. So the one, one thing that's been um, talked a lot in historical scholarship is the British um, occupation of Havana. So during the Seven Years' War, or what some people call the French and Indian War, the British attack Havana and take it, and they occupy it for about 10 months. And in those 10 months, they kind of, they give a, a real boost to sugar production. So they they allow ships with African captives to come in and sell Africans free, sell unfree Africans freely. Um, they reduce all kinds of taxes on sugar and, um, and basically, you know, the, the, the industry takes, the planters take advantage of that to increase production, uh, purchase more human beings to, to work it. So that's part of the story. But, uh, but really the major impetus comes uh, a little bit later with the Haitian Revolution. So, um, the Haitian Revolution, which of course took place in the French colony of Saint-Domingue from 1791 to, to 1804, uh, Saint-Domingue had been the richest sugar, uh, the richest colony actually in the, in the world. And it produced most of the world's sugar. And so when the Haitian Revolution happened and enslaved people rose up, uh, sugar production there drastically declined and Cuban planters 
were, you know, they were paying keen attention and they said, they literally said the hour of our happiness has arrived. This is our chance to become what the Saint-Domingue planters were. And so in that moment, the planters mobilized to win all kinds of concessions from um, from the Spanish crown. So again, they expand the slave trade, they free the slave trade, uh, they reduce taxes, they, you know, they, they get loans for uh, purchasing sugar equipment. Uh, and it's really in the, af- in the immediate aftermath of the Haitian revolution that kind of Cuba's destiny as a, as a sugar, pro- as a sugar producer, as, as a slave society, as a plantation society gets really uh, fixed. Ada, could you maybe talk a little bit, because I think this will be interesting and maybe not super familiar to listeners, about the, the racial caste system that had developed in Cuba basically on the eve of it transforming into a sugar political economy. Uh, what rights do people who are of Spanish descent born in Cuba have? What rights don't they have? And how does that relate to the system of slavery that has been yeah. developing over yeah. the previous 200 years? Right. I mean, that's a, that's a huge question <laughs> and a great one. Um, yeah. So, you know, as I said, African slavery existed from the beginning. So did opportunities for, for enslaved Africans to become free. So uh, the Spanish law of slavery did, uh, did afford, at least in theory, more rights for people to pursue their freedom. They had the, the, the right to change masters if a master was abusive. Uh, to petition for their freedom if um, if a master was um, was abusive. The, one of the main avenues to freedom was self-purchase or the purchase of family members in slavery. And there was a system that uh, developed in Cuba called cuartación, which allowed people to purchase their own freedom in installments. And so, for example, uh, when when someone was sold, uh, the contract, the bill of sale had the, the, the purchase price. It also included the price of that person's freedom. And the enslaved person could work towards that price by giving the master money in installments. And so let's say someone had accumulated half of their, had already given in half the price for their freedom. If that master sold that person to someone else, that half freedom moved with them. So it's a new, it's an unusual system that, that people tried to use to the extent, to the fullest extent possible, uh, because Havana, and, and, and I should say that people had the opportunity to take advantage of that or to use it more if they were in cities than if they were in the countryside, right? Because there were more opportunities for self-purchase or to do this, you know, there were, there were, there was more, there were more ways to, to possibly make money. So, so from early on, you have both slavery and you have free people of color. Right, uh, the 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 island's population becomes uh, majority black in the era of the Haitian Revolution. So before that, there I don't have the figures right in front of me. I apologize, but it might have been about forty something percent black. It goes up to like maybe fifty seven, and in about um, 1810, 1817. So it's in the aftermath of the Haitian Revolution. Um, that the, that the, that the demographic, uh, the, the demographic presence of African and African descended people become a majority, 
um, and so on. Yeah. Uh, so one thing that I want to get to, particularly because now we're in the era of the so-called American Revolution, is I think it's very interesting and pointedly that your book is titled, um, subtitled in American History. So could you maybe just talk a little bit about sort of the um, language wars that have been fought over the use of American, and particularly just for listeners who might not know, and a lot of Spanish language scholarship, um, people who in the U.S. are referred to as Americans, i.e. people from the United States, are referred to as Estado Unidenses, forgive my my Spanish, uh, my terrible Spanish accent. Mm-hmm. But I think this is a really interesting, you know, discussion that 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 goes on in academia that most people might not be aware of. So as we enter the era of the, you know, the American revolutions across the across North and South and Central America, could you maybe talk a little bit about why you find it important to title it in American history and what work that's doing? Yeah. So, um, I've, you know, I've talked a little, I talk a little bit about that in the prologue and I've talked about it in conversations I've had with other folks about the book. There's multiple reasons that I, that I use that. First, I mean, I like it because it's a little unsettling. Like people, don't, they're not quite sure what it means. So <laughs> I like, I, you know, I like doing that to readers, like not confusing them, but I like having them like, just question something momentarily and then take that question and do things, do productive, I hope, uh, things with it. So, um, so I like the title for that reason. So one reason I call it an American history is, you know, cause I'm the, the, I'm writing the book in English. I'm publishing it in the U S in the first instance, most of the readers will be, will be U S readers. Right. Uh, and I think many of them are often not aware as you said, of the wars over that, over that word, they assume that America is a synonym for the U.S., right? So, so right away, I want to kind of trouble their idea of that because, you know, America seen from the, America seen from the outside in is not America. It's, it's the United States. Um, so anyway, so I want, I use, I use the title in part to, to, yeah, to remind readers to force American, American or U.S. readers to reckon with the fact that um, that the word America does not only belong to the U.S., that it's the word that's used for, for a whole hemisphere, in a sense. So, so to kind of confront them with that. But the other reason, um, you know, then another reason I use it, and that, that actually that reason is related to, if you think about the figure of Jose Martí, who's, one, you know, one of the most famous Cubans in history, uh, an advocate for Cuban independence, his most famous anthologized essay was Nuestra America, Our America, which was precisely about, about that, and which also precisely and very forcefully brought up the question of U.S. imperialism. So it's a way of making U.S. imperialism part of the story from the very beginning. And then finally, I think that I, I always think that often the most interesting perspective on any given thing comes from, a, comes from a perspective that's partially the perspective of an outsider. Not a total outsider, but someone who's insider-outsider. That's why Jose Martí, for example, who spent most of his adult life in New York and chronicled American life, U.S. life, New York life, his, his accounts are so interesting precisely because he was an immigrant, because he lived in New York, loved New York, but was also an outsider. And so I think that because the U.S. played such an enormous role in Cuban history, to study Cuban history is also to gain insight and gain perspective on the U.S. itself. So I feel like, you know, and this would be true for other countries as well, in which the U.S. has played such a major 
role that if you study Cuba, where the U.S. did so much and was such a recurring influential presence, that's also a way to understand U.S. history. So I feel like it's a history of Cuba, but it's also a very, it's in part a kind of selective, necessarily incomplete history of the U.S., of the U.S. and the world. That's really interesting. You could imagine a book titled Iraq in American History, something along those lines. That's a really uh, cool move. Uh, Derek, I think you had a question. Uh, yeah. So uh, along these lines, I guess, let's jump into the relationship uh, between Cuba and the U.S. Um, I mean, uh, you know, I think most people uh, have some basic understanding of the Spanish-American War. Some people may be familiar with the debates kind of pre-Civil War over making Cuba a slave, you know, kind of annexing Cuba and making it a slave state. But um, one of the things you, you talk about in the book, um, and, and this sort of reflects the, the fact that the interaction is not just a one-way uh, interaction, it goes in both directions, is the role that Cuba played during the American Revolution. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, um, you know, the American revolutionaries needed help. And I think Americans are much more familiar with the help given by France, um, you know, and the Marquis de Lafayette and, and all that. But, but Washington and others realized that they actually needed help from both Spain and France, that Spain was, uh, you know, still, uh, still had a, a powerful, uh, economic role in the world, right? They were, they were the ones who had the Spanish silver and the Spanish, uh, you know, the Spanish pieces of aid. So, so what, when Spain decided to help, one of the main ways it helped was by using Havana and Cuba as a source of support. So, uh, the Spanish crown gave permission for the revolutionaries to use, to basically use the port of Havana as a kind of in the, in the category of most favored nation. So, you know, you think about colonialism and monopoly arrangements, they couldn't have done that before. So the Spanish lifted those restrictions so that the American revolutionaries could come in and sell flour or buy whatever they needed, get silver, etc. So that was one way that they helped through trade. Uh, the other thing is because you know, the, the, the Havana always had kind of the storehouse of silver, most of which uh, came from Mexico. Um, the the Spanish authorized some of that silver going to Spain uh, for assistance. And then finally, the other thing is that there were, you know, they were standing. There was a, they were standing Spanish military forces in in Cuba, and some of those were used uh, in the American Revolution. So some of them fought um, some Spanish, some Cuban, some Spanish troops in Cuba were. Uh, were, were sent to fight against, because Spain also declared war on Britain, right? So the Spanish sent troops from Cuba to fight in the Mississippi Valley against the British. They sent uh, Spanish troops from Cuba um, to fight in the Bahamas against the British. So all that, you know, Washington was convinced that that also helped draw uh, the, you know, draw British forces away from, from the Americans. And then the most famous example is all this money that was given to uh, Washington in Lafayette right before the Battle of uh, of Yorktown in um, 
that was one of the major decisive battles of the of the revolution. Yeah, that's a that's a crucial one. Yeah. So, um, was there a sense, you know, I'm thinking of the work of of Matt Carp here. Was there a sense that that there was a you know an affinity between you know the early Southern leaders of the United States and Cuba because of the the notion of a slave society? Was that an element there? Because you know, as particularly after the Haitian Revolution, there's a lot of uh, uh, anxiety, to say the least, about the slave uprisings throughout the American South. So is there a sense of like imagined community between Cuba and the United States at this early moment? I, I don't see that so much in the period of, you know, the 1770s or, um, but, you know, but pretty soon after independence, Jefferson is already, and of course, Jefferson is famously a slaveholder and a, and a Southerner. Yeah. He's talking about, um, about acquiring Cuba from the very beginning. So, uh, he says the, you know, he, he, he prophecies or he says at one point that the ideal map of the United States would include Canada to the north and Cuba to the south. So um, the U.S.'s southern boundary would have been the southern coast of Cuba. And of course, he calls that an empire. He, he says something like empire then, of liberty, yeah. an empire of liberty. We'll behold such an empire of liberty as has never been seen before. But of course, it wasn't an empire of liberty. It was an empire of slavery. The question about slavery and the, and the imagined community, I think, becomes much clearer in the 1820s, uh, in the lead up to the Monroe Doctrine. Uh, a lot of times we think about the Monroe Doctrine in terms of what it, what it, um, what it tries to do. Uh, regarding South, newly independent South America, right? So this is a period of the wars of independence in Latin America and Spanish America. And the Monroe Doctrine, uh, you know, famously says that no other European power can, uh, no European power can recolonize newly independent Latin America. Of course, Cuba is not independent, but the Monroe, right. the Monroe Doctrine says, uh, no one, you know, no one can interfere there as well. So what that does is it protects Cuba because the Americans are confident that with Spain in Cuba, they can still invest, they can still reap profits, they could still make connections. So the Americans come to the conclusion in the 1820s that if, if Cuba remains Spanish, it's okay. They can handle it. But they don't want Cuba to become British because if Cuba becomes British, the slave trade will end. Eventually, slavery will end. So, so the the interest, especially after the eighteen twenties, is very much an interest based on on what you were just saying. This imagined community over the question of slavery. So, and I can say, you know, at that point, you have American senators who own plantations in Cuba. There's a you know, famous one senator, um, DeWolf, who was a slave trader, uh, and also owned about four or five plantations in Cuba. That that's really interesting. I just want to go back slightly a little bit just to give a sense of where Cuba fits into the larger Spanish imperial yeah. project. So um, uh, Miguel Hidalgo gives uh, you know the Grito de Dolores in eighteen ten, and you get the setting off this wave of revolutions throughout the uh, the you know the Spanish crown, uh, the Spanish imperial territory. So how does Cuba fit in there, and what does Spain think is going on with Cuba? Because that becomes important later for, of course, the uh, Spanish American War. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the question of Latin American independence is incredibly complex. And, you know, the, the, the current 
Hidalgo's rebellion is fascinating and important, but uh, but in many ways it's it's not the beginning. The beginning is the Napoleonic invasion of the peninsula, where Napoleon installs his brother on the Spanish crown, and and much of Spain and Spanish American reject that, and they form juntas to rule in the absence of a legitimate king. Of course, that establishes the precedent of home rule, and so that kind of gets things going. Then anyway, so you can. Um, we can narrate all that. Uh, it, it unfolds very differently across different territories of Spanish America. Uh, but in Cuba, the timing is key, right? The, 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 this all happens precisely in the moment, in the aftermath of the Haitian Revolution, where, where Cubans are, Cuban planters are profiting enormously, right? So they, and, and there's two things that, um, that in a convince Cubans to remain under Spain's fold. One is the fact that economically it, it makes sense because they're, you know, in that moment, sugar is taking off, plantations are, 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 are multiplying, sugar mills are multiplying, uh, the slave trade is an ascent and they're profiting, uh, from, uh, from, from that. So, uh, so they, they don't want to disrupt that. Um, they also realize that as Spain is losing more territories in Spanish America, that the, the Cuban elite can wrest more concessions from Spain. You know, so Spain, it doesn't want to lose Cuba, you know, in addition, right? So, so in a sense, the fact that all this stuff is going on in South America gives more power to the local elite to get more concessions. So, for example, in 1817, they get free trade with the United States. Which is ma which is major. I mean, the U.S. is kind of the, na the natural market for for Cuban sugar, and and that's an enormous uh, accomplishment for them. The other reason they, that they don't opt for independence is that they realize, that, you know, they've got the example of Haiti, they've got the example of war, and and violence unfolding across South America, and they realize that if they if they attempt a revolution against Spain they may not be able to control the outcome, that a social revolution could very well produce a rebellion among the enslaved, among free people of color, and they don't have the confidence that they could retain control. So in a sense, it seems too big a risk for them. You know, they're profiting, they can get more profits in the current context. Why risk possibility of a social revolution where they could lose it all? So they right, continue, and they can get so yeah. many concessions. Yeah, right. that's that's super interesting. But of course, in 1868, there is this war uh, of independence. So in the lead up to that, what what is what is Cuba doing? And particularly uh, given your focus, how does it relate to the United States in the run up during and then immediately after the Civil War? And does that, forgive my ignorance, does that have an uh, impact on why the Cuban War of Independence uh, breaks out, or is it totally disconnected? Well, um, you know. There's no way to answer that question without talking a little bit about U.S. annexationism, right? Which is the oh, idea let's, let's that, it, yeah. yeah, that that you know Americans want to annex Cuba. Uh, they want to not as a territory, right? I mean, because you think about westward expansion in places that are territories first and then become states. With Cuba, the idea was was to annex it immediately as a state and not, not as a state, but actually as two states, as three states, right? Cause it's a long Island. So they, and, and not just as three states, but as three slave states. Uh, and that was always the idea behind, um, behind annexation. And, 
you know, it had some, it was, it was primarily a project of the South for that reason, but there were also a, a Northern commercial interests that had, uh, that, that supported it as well. Now, after the U.S. Civil War, annexation of Cuba doesn't, doesn't make any sense anymore immediately, right? If the idea had been to annex it as a slave state, you can't annex it as a slave state um, after 1868. And there's all, you know, there's, and so that, so that, so annexationism kind of went into, um, into decline. And I think in Cuba as well, it felt like a new, like a, like, like a new era because in Cuba, the elite thought about annexation to the U S quite a bit. Right. So that's out of the question. Uh, the Spanish initially, um, form, try to engage in some acts of reform and they appoint a commission to study, um, more autonomy for for Cubans, et cetera. This those, is before the the outbreak of the before, War of yeah. So right. yeah, okay. Yeah. So eighteen six so early 18, early to eight, mid eighteen sixty six was was that commission. So uh, and that fails, and and so you have the beginning of the war in eighteen sixty eight. Uh, interestingly, it begins in eastern Cuba, which is a which is an area where the sugar plantation is not that important. You have you know, smaller, more old fashioned sugar mills, you have coffee. It's a different society than the huge modern plantations of West and Central Cuba that are major, you know, with hundreds of enslaved workers, modern mills, that's not where it begins. So it begins in in a more kind of old fashioned area. Uh, and it begins with a sugar planter, a white sugar planter, who frees his own enslaved uh, workers and offers them says, you know, invites them to join in the struggle for independence. So, uh, so that happens in October of 1868. So right away, the question of, of independence, the question of freedom for Cuba from Spain is intricately tied to the question of freedom, uh, and slavery and race. And, you know, it's a 30 year story that I think is just, uh, fascinating and, um, and unusual. And anyway, yeah, I can go on and on about that. <laughs> so one thing that 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 makes me think of, and tell me if this is just totally wrong as an outsider, is that didn't the Castro Revolution also begin in Eastern Cuba, or am I I'm misremembering that? Well, uh, I mean, he was from Eastern Cuba. Uh, or the and, landing, I'm thinking, is that is yes, that incorrect? Yes, yes, he was from Eastern right. Cuba, and the and the mountains in which he waged guerrilla war were in Eastern Cuba. And sometimes, you know, Cubans will talk about the East as the cradle of revolution. That's what I was asking about. For that reason. Of course, that's also, so that's all true, but it's also a particular, uh, not rewriting, but a particular vision of that history because the, the revolution was actually really powerful also in Havana. It was just wasn't it wasn't a guerrilla war in Havana. It wasn't it, a it. rural war. I mean, there in terms of in terms of the movement against Batista, the student movement, um, urban, ur- you know, urban, urban workers, all that, it, it was um, it was powerful across the island and in cities as well. It's just that after the revolution came to power, the narrative that 
that was privileged was the narrative of the of the gorillas in the mountains. Right, the more romantic narrative yeah, that, right. that particularly attracted elite people in the United yes, States. Exactly. And, um, so uh, let's let, back, back to the you know the the 1860s, 1870s. So how does that war of independence end? What does Spain promise? And then I, I was wondering if that relates to the the ending of slavery, which I believe occurs in 1886, mm-hmm. which is the, is that the it's second only to Brazil, which I right. believe is 1888, uh, right. and the abolition of slavery. So could you maybe talk about um, what does Spain promise, uh, what leads to abolition, and why is Cuba so late, comparatively speaking, in the Western Hemisphere yeah. to abolish slavery? Yeah. Well, you, you know, as I just mentioned, talking about the war, that right away, the question of slavery is a critical, is a critical question. And if you the war lasts for 10 years hence that's why it's called the 10 years war 1868 to 78 and several several things happen in that time the rebels um end slavery in rebel territory and so that's which is huge only in the territories that that they controlled and um but but that's hugely important they also uh, recruit and mobilize enslaved, for, enslaved or formerly enslaved workers. So you have, uh, so you have black Cubans, you know, joining the, the independence movement in really large numbers, which is also very important. The, the rebel movement created an army called the Army of Liberation, which was a thoroughly multiracial fighting force in which men of color ascended through the ranks. So you had black generals, black, you know, brigadiers, corporals, captains, etc. Uh, so it was just, so it was a fascinating movement to emerge out of a slave society. It doesn't mean that it was anti-racist or some kind of like colorblind utopia wasn't in the least. Uh, but it did, it challenged in really fundamental ways the, the, you know, the viability of slavery as an institution in Cuba. And the Spanish had to respond to that. They realized they couldn't just keep defending slavery. So they started enacting reforms little by little. In 1870, two years into the war, they enacted what's called a free womb law, right? So there would be no more children born into slavery. They outlaw the whip, things like that. Uh, and then um, at the end of the war, they give freedom to all those who had fought in the war on either side, Um and also to Chinese contract workers, because there were Chinese contract workers in Cuba. Um, it, to, uh, it ended their, um, it gave freedom or ended their contracts as well. So about 16,000 people became free at the end of the war as a result of that agreement. Uh, so that was one thing that the Spanish uh, promised. The Spanish also, um, as a result at the end of the war, um, prom- really liberalized censorship laws and allowed for the publication uh, for publications that explicitly advocated Cuban independence, so long as they didn't advocate violence. And what you had after the end of the war in 1878 was the, the proliferation, especially in the late 80s and then early 90s, pro- proliferation of pro-independence uh, writings, essays, memoirs of the first war. Um, so, so you have this, this fascinating um new kind of not genre but a new a new type of work emerging cuba at that point some na- nationalist patriotic writings 
why does Spain allow this? Why is it so? I mean, this is a world historical question. Yeah. Like, why does Spain become weak in the 19th century? But just a little bit. Why is it allowed? I mean, this is clearly paving the path for independence, and yeah, they must but, have known that think, at the time. Yeah, no, but I think they also realized that they 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 couldn't win the peace. It's not like you know. It's like they didn't want to. They didn't want independence, but they realized that like that the the demands were real. The war had, you know, when the war first broke out, they thought they could handle it in a couple of months. It lasted ten years, right? So they knew that they had to give in on something. So they allowed more publications. They allowed political parties. They legalized Cuban political parties for the first time. And some of those parties were not, you know, were not pro independence. Some of them wanted autonomy under Spain, some kind of uh, arrangement where Cuba would remain Spanish, but, but there would be, you know, local home rule. So it did open Uh the path for things like that. Um, yeah. And I forgot what else I was going to (laughs) say. No, that's perfect. (laughs) Um, I'm curious, um, you know, as you said, annexation was at this point kind of off the table in the, the discourse in the United States about Cuba, but, um, what, if any sort of impression did the 10 years war uh, make in the United States? How was it covered? Um, You know, was there any sort of um, sense of kind of watching these people uh, struggle for independence? I know there were a couple of um, U.S. soldiers who served. You know, mm-hmm. Thomas Jordan commanded for a time the uh, the Cuban Liberation Army, and there, were, there was at least one other, I think, uh, Civil War vet who served in the Cuban army. Um, how how was the sort of, you know, as the people are in the United States kind of watching this go on, what, what, uh, uh, what were they sort of, what was the impression that they were uh, deriving? Yeah, so, I mean, there were, they watched carefully. There were always, I mean, I think because of that long history of U.S. interest in Cuba, they watched pretty closely. The other thing that's true is that there was also a significant Cuban community in the U.S., Right, who was writing about this and who were meeting with American counterparts and American politicians trying to get the U.S. to recognize the rebels as legitimate belligerents and therefore provide aid. The U.S. The U.S. Um, didn't didn't do that. Um, yeah, so I don't. I'm not sure. I have much more to say about that. Um, yeah, I was. Well, that I. Yeah, I think that brings us actually perfectly to, to where we'll end this conversation, which is the, the Spanish-American War or the War of 1898. I, I had a question, actually, yeah. as a specialist. Which one is now preferred? I've, I've heard it both. I've heard the War of 1898, and I've heard the Spanish-American War. Which, as, as a Cubanist, which one should I use when I teach the history of American imperialism, well, U.S. I would, imperialism? I would, well, you know, there's if you're teaching the history of American imperialism, it's interesting to use the Spanish-American War because the fact that it's called that says so much about American imperialism. Yeah, I talk about that. I, yeah. I give like the conversation, but I'm right. not sure as, as a good person, which one should I use? I think the, mo- the more accurate, <laughs> the definitely the more accurate term is the War of 1898. But even okay, that is really, use, even that is, probably, you know, not the full story because, um, you know, when people teach or learn about the Spanish-American War or the War of 1898, the assumption is that it begins in 1898. Right. And but Cubans had been struggling for independence for 30 years. So there had been the war, you know, the first war, which was 1868 to 78. There was actually a second war shortly after 1879 to 1880. And then there was the final war of independence, which was 1895 to 1898. 
And in that war in which Jose Martí fought and died, Antonio Maceo, who's a fascinating uh, Afro-Cuban general who fought, you know, who'd been fighting since 1868, also is killed uh, in that war. Um, you know, by the end, by, by the final phases of that war, uh, the Cubans are convinced that they are winning. Right. So Maximo Gomez is the, the, at that, at that point, the, you know, the highest, he is the highest, uh, ranking general predicts that the war will be over before 1898. And that was the first time he predicted that the Spanish could held the cities, but, but the insurgents had control of the countryside. It was not clear that Spain could ever win. They had tried a hard line with a horrible governor named uh, Waylet, who was called the Butcher, who basically reconcentrated people. It was a precursor term for concentration camps, uh, much much more famous and much more um, and much you know much deadlier later in the in the twentieth century. But he basically tried to deny insurgents the support of people in the countryside by basically moving people from the countryside who might have supported the insurgents ideologically, materially, etc. He moved them into cities and towns uh, without food, without housing, without care, and, you know, and hundreds of thousands died, right? So they tried the hard line that didn't work. They tried offering autonomy, and some people were interested, but it did not sway enough people. So the Cubans were convinced that they were almost, they were almost there, Right. And it's at that point that the USSS Maine explodes in Havana Harbor and that the U.S. declares war on Spain. So the thing that we know of as the as the War of 1898 or the Spanish-American War is really just the last four months of a process that is much longer, of a process that is about Cuban independence from Spain, uh, an independence in which the question of race had become central and which there were leaders who really advocated uh, of, 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 you know, a vision against racial discrimination, right? Which is, re which is really important. And the American intervenes, you know, precisely at the moment when racial violence is on the rise uh, in the U.S. South after Reconstruction. And so I feel like that's what I, that's what I, that's what troubles me about those terms, that it still privileges 1898 in a way that erases this 30 year history of independence fighting, of anti, of, of, of mobilizing around racial equality, around freedom from slavery, et cetera, et cetera. That's that's really interesting. And so it seems like we haven't yet developed a term that encompasses the complexities. And uh, also in the Philippines. And yeah, that Puerto was just to say. Uh, and then Puerto there's Rico also the question of Puerto Rico and the, and the, and the Philippines, right? Because, yeah. And in the Philippines, there was also a war of independence right. against Spain for, that, for that, so preceded yeah. the, that preceded the, the, the American intervention. So why don't we try to take then, just as, as we finish up here, uh, how does... Cuba fit into this larger story about which Americans, uh, people in the United States are, are familiar with, you know, this is the moment where the United States tries to become a formal empire. Uh, it colonizes the Philippines, it colonizes Puerto Rico, it doesn't colonize Cuba. So maybe we could actually, or well, formally, yeah. <laughs> we could talk about that later <laughs> and in a later conversation, sort of the neo-colonial form the U.S. relationship with Cuba takes. But how does Cuba fit into that, that larger project? And why don't we end on that question? Yeah. And if, I mean, if you could uh, talk you know, maybe briefly about the the quite the huge discrepancy and sort of the narrative that uh, people in the U.S. 
view this the, the intervention in in Cuba under versus um, the way that Cubans viewed the U.S. intervention is sort of a, a hijacking their revolution. Can you, yeah, maybe, you know, if you can yeah. talk a little no, bit about that. No, that's that's hugely important, and it's also, in a sense, that's that's a little bit the answer to Daniel's question. That um, you know, the U.S. historically has a vision of itself as as a as an accidental empire or, you know, either, either not an em- as an empire or if that as an accidental empire or a benevolent empire, et cetera. Right. And in some sense, like, you know, bringing in this Cuban, sto- this longer Cuban story of 30 years, or, you know, equiv- you know, likewise a longer Philippine story uh, kind of, you know, puts the lie to that. Uh, and in terms of the difference between how it's seen, you know, how you see it, depending on where you're standing, when, you know, and, and you, you know, you see this in American history way beyond this point. So even when the revolution happens in 1959, you have American senators and American, you know, Eisenhower and others who are bringing up the history of the Spanish-American War and saying, we freed them. They can't pay us back with communism. We, we helped them win their independence. We helped them. We, you know, we, we were, we were the neighborly, brotherly power that, that won independence for them. And that was a vision that was deeply held by, by, by a sector of, an important sector of, of U.S. leadership. In terms of Cuba, it was seen, um, I mean, there were some in Cuba who might have seen it that way, but that was by large, by, you know, that was by far not, not the dominant. View the idea was that the, the Americans had come, had swept in at the end when they had all the Cubans had already almost won, and then kind of stolen stolen the victory from them. So there was a lot of resentment over think over the fact over facts like you know that that the U.S. prohibited Cuban forces from entering cities uh, after the victory against Spain, that the U.S. kept Cuban forces from or the Cuban leadership from participating in the Treaty of Paris that ended that ended the war. Um, so there was an, an enormous level of, of resentment. And um, one of the most, there's an important book written by a, a Cuban historian published in 1950 that was called, he was the historian of the city of Havana, and the book was called Cuba Does Not Owe Its Independence to the U.S. That was the title. (laughs) Yes, exactly. And that, so that, that's a, that's a powerful view that then is going to, is going to shape the U.S.-Cuban relation throughout the 20th century. Like the story, it's a story of 1898, but the repercussions of it are really important to understand the the history of the Cuban Republic following that. And so this is, Let's make this the final question. Given the long history of uh, U.S. annexationism, particularly interest in Cuba, why doesn't the U.S. annex Cuba? Yeah, you know that's a that's a on some level it's it's weird that it was so, it was a goal so deeply held for so long and that they came so close and it never happened, right? So it almost happened in the eighteen forties. It could have happened in the and then it didn't. I think in terms of eighteen ninety eight, there were. Um, there were several issues. One was that I don't think the consensus in the U.S. Uh, would have supported that. There was also, I mean, racial thing. You know that that was such a uh, a nadir in terms of U.S. Of, in terms of race and racial uh, justice. So, but I mean, it was nowhere near racial in the U.S. Right, the the reversal of Reconstruction and so on. There were people in the U.S. who. Um, 
you know, in the beginning, before the U.S. intervened, the American press tended to talk about Cuba as kind of this sister, fellow American uh, colony that was fighting a war just like the War of Independence in the U.S. After the U.S. intervenes, the discourse changes. And, and in the U.S. press, uh, there's much more focus on Cuba as a place with, that, is lar- that is largely or significantly Black. So I think there's there's uh, racist discourses against uh, annexation in that moment. So I think that's part of it. I think the other part is that what is is exactly the kind of Cuban resentment that I'm talking about. That um, there was such opposition, for example, to the imposition of the Platt Amendment, which I guess we'll talk about next time. There was such. Um, the, the power of, of Cuban nationalism uh, in that moment after a 30-year struggle was such that it would have been really hard for, uh, for the U.S. to, um, to annex it. And they're also fighting a, a guerrilla war in the Philippines. In the Philippines, too. exactly. Right. And I think that really bogs bogged people, yeah. um, bogged American policymakers down. Yeah. And I think they recognize that would have happened in Cuba yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Ada, thank you so much, and we'd love to have you back um, to talk about the 20th century, but there's just so much here. Everyone purchase uh, Cuba and American history, but not from Amazon, from somewhere else. Uh, and Ada, thank you so much. We really we, appreciate we'll, we'll it. We'll have a non-Amazon link. Yes, great. We'll have great. a non-Amazon the show, link. So yes, great. definitely do that. All right. Well, thanks for having me. I enjoyed the conversation. Thanks, Ada. All right. Bye. 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 Bye.